This is Conducting Business, WQXR's show about the classical music industry. I'm Naomi Lewin. With the holiday season, flurries of Christmas recordings are hitting the market. Some feature the usual suspects and repertoire. What you're hearing now is from a brand new CD from the Choir of Kings College, Cambridge. Others add new spice to the winter blend. For retailers, Christmas is big business. Is that true for classical music, too? Today we'll explore that with three guests. Here in the studio with me is Anastasia Tsoukas, who covers the classical beat for NPR Music. Joining us on a very clear line is Anne Majette, the chief classical music critic of the Washington Post. And on a slightly fuzzier line, Steve Epstein, a multi-Grammy-winning producer of numerous classical recordings. And about three years ago possibly under the effects of your umpteenth messiah, you wrote a column that said Christmas was the one time of year when classical music really thrived and connected with a wider audience. Would you like to explain that? Well, I think there are two times classical music has a larger social relevance. I'm not speaking qualitatively. I'm speaking times people turn to it. It's the holidays and it's times of national crisis. Both of those times, people who don't normally listen to classical music, often find themselves going to concerts, turning to it. Certainly, the holidays are an industry for every chorus in the land. The number of holiday Christmas concerts, carol concerts, and sing-along messiahs, I have never done a formal tally of what percentage of of season concerts this amounts to, but it certainly accounts for the majority of the revenue, I know, for the big symphonic choruses in Washington. And to say nothing of the sales of holiday albums, everybody has to have a holiday album, some people more than one. Anastasia, NPR Music featured a piece last year speaking of the holiday album that said where, or asked, where have all the classical Christmas recordings gone? And in fact, there aren't as many. Where have they gone? Well, I thought it was a great column, and I get to say that because I didn't write it. It was written by my co-conspirator, Tom Heisinger, who also writes the Deceptive Cadence blog for NPR. But I thought he brought up a really fascinating question uh, with maybe a fairly jaded answer I'd give. Where are the the recordings go? They're very expensive to make. You know, the big star-studded album with a full symphony orchestra behind them and maybe chorus thrown in for good measure is extremely expensive to produce, is my understanding. And I think just simply dollars and cents is what accounts for a lot of it. We see a lot of now kind of recital-y albums, whether it's Josh Bell in the studio with a ray of guest artists or Yo-Yo Ma. And I know, Steve, you were very intimately tied to both of those. Uh, but they're kind of two great examples that spring to mind. But I think those are have a very cozy feeling that people like and not sort of the grand bombast that we associate with the big albums. But I think a lot of it comes down to simple economics. Well, that's a microcosm of what's happening in the classical music field anyway. If you look through the new recordings, there are fewer large orchestra albums of any stripe and more small, intimate chamber albums. That said, I think that there are lots and lots of Baroque Christmas albums, early music Christmas albums, um, choral Christmas albums. I don't really see a diminution in those. But I would say, oh, I was just going to say, I think that's a great point, Anne, but a lot of those are self-released, you know, by organizations, and that makes a big difference in in cost. We'll get to those, but first I'd like to let Steve (laughs) chime in about that Joshua Bell recording, and you've produced 
quite a few Christmas recordings, the most recent one being the one was mentioned, Musical Gifts from Joshua Bell and Friends, which includes all kinds of different artists, Alison Krauss, Chick Corea, Michael Feinstein, others. And you did a similar one with Yo-Yo Ma a few years back. Is rounding up the stars from different genres like that the new template for a Christmas recording? Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, this is pretty much the direction, you know, if you can afford it, if a, a large label, uh, in this case uh, Sony Masterworks, can afford, uh, you know, hiring these uh, superstar artists to join uh, um, either Yo-Yo, uh, who's a superstar artist, as is Joshua, and um, create an eclectic kind of an album. Uh, it's funny because the, the albums that I've done, the Christmas albums, none of which over the years have really been classically based. I did an album with Wynton Marsalis called um, was Crescent City Christmas Card, which we did, I think, in 1989. And, um, of course, that's Wynton and um, members of his jazz group at the time. But that, as well, featured Kathleen Battle uh, to sing Silent Night and the wonderful John Hendricks singing Sleigh Ride. Uh, so that is really what sort of brings in the, uh, the consumer or the additional guest artists. But interestingly enough, a couple of years ago, I did an album called Karelu, K-A-R-O-L-J-U. It, it was featured David Zinman, speaking of classical and orchestral, David Zinman conducting the BBC Symphony Orchestra, and the music is by Christopher Rouse, Ludislavsky, and, uh, and Rodrigo. But the wonderful thing about this recording is that, which features basically Chris Rouse's piece, Karelu, is that there's not one original carol in the piece. They're all originally composed by him, and you'd think you've heard these carols before. Some incredibly beautiful, very tonal music, uh, all for symphony orchestra and chorus. It was the Philharmonia chorus uh, that we recorded. So that, I guess, is as close to a classical kind of Christmas album that I've made. Well, I have a couple of questions now. First of all, new repertoire like that, does that catch on? But I wanted to go back and, and ask, when you've got a recording like the Joshua Bell one with people from all different genres, who is the consumer? Who buys that? Does that cut across all different tastes? Well, I think so. I mean, when you, you hear the name Joshua Bell, immediately you're guided toward the classical realm, I guess. And it really depends on how it's marketed. And that is sort of out of my field of expertise. If but, I, uh, I could check, I'm yeah. having been at a label a couple of times over, um, or a label group. Christmas seems to be its own sort of genre. And that, and that you really get a cut across of all things. There's not classical jazz bins and classical Christmas bins and jazz Christmas bins and pop Christmas bins. That it, it winds up all going to sort of the same channels. And some artists have more sort of mass pop culture name recognition than others. But it seems that when those things are marketed, they're marketed to serve a mass consumer base. True. Anne mentioned earlier that the holiday concerts keep choirs afloat, and I know that the Nutcracker keeps ballet companies afloat for the rest of the year. Is the same thing true for Christmas recordings, that they keep record labels, which are otherwise floundering, afloat? I would very much doubt it, but I would think... I think there's been a kind of Hope Springs eternal um, attitude, particularly to marketing the crossover type album, which is, of course, what a Christmas album is. Um, we've seen a lot of sort of throw the mud on the wall and see what sticks kind of approach to recordings over the last 20 years. And I would guess that some of these, you know, Christmas with the Stars albums represent that. There certainly are fewer, you know, big opera singer album type things. I think that's partly because there are fewer big opera singers. I mean, you look at the number of classical stars that have that kind of appeal. It's 
descended dramatically. But we haven't um, seen a Renee Fleming Christmas album. Thank God. <laughs> no, we haven't. But she would be the only opera singer. She and Anna Trebko would be the only opera singer I'd, singers, I'd say, who really could do an album that might have that kind of mass appeal. I know Anthony Dean Griffey has done one, um, which he did himself to raise money for a cause he believes in, which is a whole different animal in terms of the commercial life of such a recording, um, in which I commend heartily. Steve, uh, you're with the recording industry. How big a deal are Christmas releases? You know, it's all it's all relative. Uh, if, we're, if we're talking about the classical recording industry, I mean, obviously, uh, uh, sales of classical albums these days uh, are fairly nominal, uh, unfortunately. So, again, it's, it's all relative. And uh, speaking of opera singers, I mean, Renee Fleming, for instance, is sought after uh, for these kinds of things. She's a guest on um, the Joshua Bell album, as well as the Yo-Yo Ma and Friends. So she, she does make the rounds, but perhaps, as you're suggesting, not, is, not in a, doing it in a full you know, album dedicated to, uh, to Christmas music. It's interesting that the Pavarotti Oh Holy Night album is not only the biggest-selling classical Christmas recording of all time, according to one source, it is also one of the top ten classical albums, period. Is it a shame that we're not seeing any more of these opera singer-driven vehicles? No, not at all a shame. I mean, you want a voice that's exciting enough to make people care, but artistically, these things are negligible. And I, you know, I say that as somebody who has my favorite Christmas albums. They've been basically the same since I was about seven. Which are? um, The Golden Age Christmas, absolutely, which is an assortment of the Golden Age singers, Ernestine Schumann, Heinck, and Richard Crooks, and John McCormick. And those voices went into my ear through that album and stay there. The compilations are issued under different rubrics these days. I think there's one called An Old Met Christmas. But I would think very few people would argue that many of these albums have a lasting appeal. That Pavarotti's does is partly because of who Pavarotti was and because Pavarotti remains the quintessential artist who can be marketed to both areas, that is, the classical audience and the mass audience. You know, there are a lot of serious attempts to make artistic Christmas albums as well. But as you know, as we've said, those are much smaller, sometimes self-released, sometimes small groups of, of people. But I, you know, I think we're talking about two different categories of thing. The mass Christmas album where Kiri Takano gets up with an orchestra, which is perhaps a little dated, and the group that's trying to find something new to say surrounding the holiday, um, which has a lot to do with the roots of classical music in the Catholic Christian tradition. Well, I think, Anne, you bring up a really interesting point, which is I think there's so much nostalgia that ties into this, that the albums you hear when you're young or in formative years or that you remember with your family, that sort of transcends sort of more regular or, if you can call it, objective matters of taste. You know, I remember loving, I think it was a Von Trapp family Christmas album when I was terrible, when I was a kid, and I resurfaced it recently on you know, through one of the streaming services, I'm like, oh, God, this is terrible. It's terrible. <laughs> but, you know, it's one of my most treasured memories. And it g- grew, the the artistic uh, quality grew much more in my memory than, than was actually present or necessary. But, I mean, that's the kind of thing. And I think that that's, you know, we, we're talking here about classically based albums and classical artists, but every pop artist does an album, a Christmas album, at least one, maybe many. And that's part of the, can you catch that generation of people who bought that album because, oh, my favorite artist has a Christmas album, and then that becomes their canonical go-to Christmas album. Steve, is that something that you try for to capture that nostalgia factor when you produce a Christmas album? 
You know, I'm, I'm pretty much guided by the arrangements. I mean, the arrangements are, are done by a music director who makes suggestions, and then I'll have some input in that as well as producer. Um, but to tell you the truth, I think the I think the most successful Christmas albums are those where the arrangements are not complex and that the um, so the melodies don't don't get lost and that they're pretty clearly stated and performed. Obviously, the use of standard Christmas tunes are, are the most successful. But well, you mentioned the Karelu which is a beautiful recording of non-standard but sounding standard music. Can a new Christmas recording like that ever catch on? Well, I have to say, I, it's not exactly new, but I just got sent a really, really lovely album called uh, The Sounding Joy Christmas Songs In and Out of the Ruth Crawford Seeger Songbook. And Ruth Crawford Seeger was a great modernist composer as well as folklore expert. She was, Pete Seeger's mom and Charles Seeger's wife and all this, but she had an incredible uh, body of work as as a composer herself. And Elizabeth Mitchell, who is a singer-songwriter who specializes now in kids' music, has resurfaced a lot of this material. To Steve's point, they're very spare arrangements and very beautiful, I think, and just... I, I, I was blown away, and I didn't think I'd ever say that by by a Christmas album, about a Christmas album. And it's not new material per se, but it's stuff that's unfamiliar to our ears. M- much of it. There's a few sort of uh, the cherry tree carol and sort of things that are at the periphery of the Christmas canon. But most of it, I think, would be new to 21st century America's ears. And it's just gorgeous, gorgeous. You know, that brings up a point that I'm sure is relevant to these that I sort of implied when I'm talking about a golden age Christmas, my mother playing this for me, me playing it every year, that you say Elizabeth Mitchell, who was extremely popular in my house because I have a toddler and we listen to a lot of her stuff. I will get that Christmas album in a heartbeat. Um, A lot of us are looking for ways to make new traditions with our kids or things our kids are going to grab onto or things that are going to make our family holiday distinctive. And I suppose that's a factor in the saleability of an album as well, which is what you were saying about tradition, just elaborating on it a bit. I think another technique in in selling a a Christmas album um, to make it maybe a little bit more appealing to listeners is including uh, what you call a deluxe package, which would include the CD plus a DVD of, let's say, the recording session or interviews with the artists in the context of their feelings about, you know, singing, you know, holiday songs or whatever or performing them. So that's also uh, something, again, I'm curious to know uh, how they sell. Obviously, they're a little bit more expensive than just buying the the, uh, CD version. So that would be curious to see how, uh, how sales compare. One of you, I think it was Anastasia, mentioned that a lot of the new releases that we've been getting this year are from early music groups. Paul Hillier Consort, Gabriele Consort, Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment. Has a big market developed for Ye Olde Christmas? Again, I think it's proportionate to the market for early music groups you know, in general, that as long as you have a great early music group, a Christmas album is a very natural place to go for that. I'm not sure that's exactly new because I think that I mean, doesn't Anonymous 4 have a Christmas album? Oh, I mean, at least I, I three, I think. Yeah, exactly. It was just that <laughs> most of the new ones this year seem to be from early music groups rather than opera star vehicles or, you know, the Joshua Bell. That that was kind of the exception to the rule this year. I'd say you'd always see a couple of the Joshua Bell or Yo-Yo Ma type thing and then a bunch of early music things. And then, you know, I, I see a lot of the local chorus ones, um, although a lot of times those are things people sell at their concert. 
Um, we haven't mentioned something like the Messiah Remix album, which I thought was really great from Cantaloupe Music. It came out in, a few years back. Um, a bunch of contemporary composers got together and played with different tracks of the Messiah and took off on it. And um, that wouldn't be everybody's taste maybe for a Christmas album, but I thought it was a pretty great idea for something to do along those lines. I don't think anyone has mentioned uh, the influence of brass ensembles. I think, if, Good if I point. recall... You know, the, the Philadelphia brass recording, it might have been Philadelphia Orchestra, I don't remember, uh, on Columbia Records many years ago, I think it was in the 60s. That was one of the top-selling, quote, quasi-classical Christmas albums uh, at the time, and I think it, it perhaps it still sells very well. Um, and the Canadian brass, I believe... They have a new uh, one. Done a, yeah, so, so th- that's also a pretty safe bet in the recording realm. See, I mean, you're right, the Canadian brass has a new one, but I don't know how many they've put over the, over the course of their ensembles. I would guess at least a dozen, probably more. I mean, yeah, that's that really is sort of a staple, a staple bit of the output. Our ears today, Steve, you mentioned the arrangements. Our ears today maybe not looking for the big orchestra sound at Christmas anymore, the way we had it from Ormandy or Fiedler. You know, to me, I mean, obviously the big orchestra sound is is incredibly appealing, and I think even to a, a young person who you know hears so much music, you know, uh, synthesized and sampled and whatever, uh, to hear the full sound of an acoustic, massive, uh, you know, ensemble uh, is always appealing. And uh, again, particularly if the arrangements are good, the, the main thing, of course, is the cost of recording uh, these ensembles. But it's funny you should ask that because, of course, in America, Messiah is the bread and butter Christmas vehicle for. Most orchestras. I mean, almost every serious orchestra does a Messiah at Christmas. Um, Is that they may a, not record a good it. Cash cow for them? It must be, or they wouldn't do it every year. It's yeah, amusing because in in Germany, Messiah is an Easter piece because it goes the whole way. But in America, you just do the Christmas part of Messiah, and that's sort of, or you go on and do the Easter part because you've got to do Alleluia. But uh, in any case, there is a trend, of course, among Handel scholarship, among Handel players, to go to a lighter early music, more original instruments approach. And there's always a, a thing about which messiah your orchestra is going to do. Are you going to go to an old, you know, Beecham, full, big sound? Or are you going to go to a lighter, lither, early music sound, um, which you can do with fewer players and different are soloists? You and going to be reviewing all the local messiahs this year? No. <laughs> all I know is that about, uh, I don't know, back in the spring, I guess, I was doing a survey of who was booking Carnegie Hall and why. Carnegie Hall, it is astonishing how many messiahs you could hear in one venue over the course of the month of <laughs> December. I think I stopped counting around a dozen. You could happily hear nothing but messiah every night of the week. Steve, we heard Anne's favorite Christmas recording What's yours? You know, one of the first records I, I'd worked on, not as a producer, but just as a, as a music editor, was putting together an album that was recorded with the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, and that was quite beautiful, of, of, of a Christmas album. So that, uh, that's one thing that sticks in my mind, I think, not, not only because of the wonderful, very straightforward arrangements and the massive sound of the chorus, but um, I think also at the beginning of my career when I was working, it's, uh, it, it holds a special, uh, you know, special place uh, but again, I um, I like the the more simple, standard you know renditions of Christmas music. Anastasia, your favorite? Uh, favorites, I'd say Charlie Brown Christmas, though not strictly classical, is a must. Uh, the it's Rob- a classic. It is a classic. It definitely is a classic. <laughs> I have a special soft spot for the Robert Shaw Chorale, Many Moods of Christmas, sort of a big, over-the-top choral sound. I think Leroy Anderson's sleigh ride in one of the how many X number of of 
incarnations it's had um, is is always fun and and there are all kinds of great albums there's a couple of great volumes on six degrees of reworked holiday standards sort of like big 1950s style pop productions remixed with electronica which are just great not classical but classic in its own way and if I'm allowed to vote, I'll go with the Philadelphia Singers doing Benjamin Britten's Ceremony of Carols. Well done. Oh, I'm glad you mentioned that piece. Another piece that I love from my childhood. Thank you all so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks, Thanks for, for having us. Thanks for having us. <laughs> I've been speaking with Anastasia Tsoulkas of NPR Music, Anne Majette of The Washington Post, and Grammy Award-winning producer Steve Epstein. Brian Wise produces this podcast, Conducting Business, which you can subscribe to on iTunes. I'm Naomi Lewin. Thanks for listening. 